Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Proverbs. Today we're in Proverbs chapter 31, that's where we will be, Proverbs 31. We begin a series that will take us to selected portion of the book of Proverbs, but also today happens to be Sanctity of Life Sunday, and so we're going to look at a specific proverb today that has to do with God's view and the sanctity of human life. Here's the key concept today, speak up for the weakest among us. Speak up for the weakest among us. Proverbs chapter 31. But before we get to this specific verse today, let me set the stage for this series and also for our understanding of Proverbs in general. Probably the most well-loved and well-known verses in the book of Proverbs is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That is a, a favorite verse. Oftentimes as we baptize people and we ask them to tell us your favorite verse, that's the verse that they, they talk about because it's such a wonderful promise. If I'm gonna do a series on the book of Proverbs, surely I'm gonna spend at least one Sunday right on those verses. Actually, no. And the reason, not because they're not important, because but what I want you to know is this entire series through Proverbs is going to be about how do we do that? What would it look like if we really trusted God with all of our heart? What would it look like? How would it change the way we live if we make our decisions, really not leaning on our own understanding, but seeking the understanding of God, believing that He has a will for us. For one thing, we would not live by man's wisdom, but by God's wisdom. That would be our priority and our goal. And the whole point of the book of Proverbs is to tell us that it takes wisdom to live life well. And true wisdom is found in God. That's the basic premise of the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs themselves, the sayings, one man has called them wisdom nuggets. That's what they are. Another one writes, this is God's Twitter feed. Short, memorable statements about what is normally true. You see, sometimes we misunderstand the Proverbs. As we read through the book of Proverbs, sometimes we think we're reading laws. They are not laws. Or we think we're reading promises. They are not promises. What they are are observations, short, memorable statements designed to show us patterns in life, the pattern of life that is generally true, or to live life as it should be true. 
not ironclad laws of the universe, but patterns that show up in life enough of the time that it is the way of wisdom to pay attention to what God says in the Proverbs. Wisdom is the skill of living life well, living life with intelligence, living life with discernment, with the moral guidance that keeps God's priorities in mind. That's wisdom. And when you get wisdom, with it comes blessing because the results of wisdom, God's saturated wisdom, is wonderful. Wisdom in this book comes in the form of Proverbs, short sayings that are generally true. And now, all around us in our society today, we still have proverbs that we use, sayings that we repeat to kind of communicate wisdom. You could probably think of a few, but I'm going to tell you a few of what I call almost proverbs. These are things that really you don't hear a lot about, but they're, they're pretty much true. For instance, here's an almost proverb. If you look like your driver's license photo, you're too ill to drive. That's an almost proverb. Or this one, when somebody says it's only money, it's usually not their money. How about this one? You should always borrow money from pessimists. They don't expect you to pay it back. Or always remember, half of the people you know are below average, so be careful about taking advice. These are almost proverbs that give us almost wisdom. But the book of Proverbs is a collection of wisdom nuggets from God. In fact, the book of Proverbs is a collection of collections. Now, next week, I'm going to talk to you about the structure and the authorship of the book. But we see in the book of Proverbs a a compilation of sayings of the wise from a number of, of authors. It's kind of a scrapbook, if you will. And while Solomon has written most of them, not all, and there's other authors involved as well. The Hebrew word that we translate uh, proverb can also be translated parable or oracle. And so while most of the proverbs are just short little statements, there are segments that hold together in a longer form, and we'll notice that as we go along. But today, we're going to look at a one-verse proverb from Proverbs 31, verse 8. And here's what it says. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Now, Proverbs 31.8 does not exclusively talk about the unborn. It's not only talking about that. There are many who can't speak for themselves. But certainly on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, we notice it applies to the unborn. And the word that's translated destitute there in the second frame of the, of the verse could also have been translated perishing. Speak up for the perishing who cannot speak for themselves. As I said, this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And as such, today we're going to talk about abortion. I realize the temptation is to ignore this topic. It's emotional. It's hard. And some think it's political. But I assure you, this is not a political issue. This is a moral issue. And it is, I believe, the central moral issue of our time. Martin Luther once said this, If I declare with a loud voice and clever exposition every point of God's Word except 
that little bit which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. In other words, he's saying every age has issues, issues that the testimony of Scripture must uh, uh, speak to so that behavior can be changed. In our age, since 1973, abortion has been legal in our country. And the number of unborn lives that have been unable to speak for themselves and have been lost to abortion in that period of time is 16 times the number of all the American lives lost in all of our wars combined. The fall of last year, statisticians reported the abortion number of of 2017. And what they found was 2017 had the lowest abortion rate since abortion was legalized in 1973. That sounds good. Sounds like it's trending in the right direction. And it is good. That is good news. But listen to what the actual number is. This is what of the abortions that we know about. 862,320 in 2017. How should we think about that kind of staggering loss? How should we comment on it? We must imagine that as a slow-moving, almost 50-year-old holocaust that's happening in our midst. But I want to start today with the reality of hope. This topic and every moral issue that's addressed from the Word of God is always bathed in grace and in mercy. Because I realize that some churches don't address this topic And they don't do so because they don't believe they can without being perceived to be either political or condemning for all eternity those who have abortion in their history. So let me start with the fact of forgiveness. We want to give thoughtful consideration to the issue, but always bathed in the truth that redemption and forgiveness and grace are the perspectives of our Lord. For those who turn to Him. The most loving thing we can do for one another is train ourselves to follow the standards of the Word of God. And that's true for any of life's difficult topics, because the lies of our age and the deceptions of our society whisper a course of action, a course of action that is opposite the will and the Word of God. They declare, do this and it will make you happy. Try this and you'll feel better. And when we listen to that voice urging us to do the opposite of the Word of God, we come to believe sometimes that I need to disobey the Lord in order to be happy. And if you're in that mode of thinking today about abortion or any topic, listen to these two truths. Truth number one, you have listened to a lie, and that lie comes from Satan, who does not want you happy. If you think that what makes you happy has to be against the will and the word of God, inevitably that will cost you and it will cost you more than the fleeting happiness you seek. Truth number two, you have placed your own happiness as the most important thing in life and it is not the most important thing. The eternal thing that a believer in Jesus Christ must cling to is obedience In what the Lord says, obedience is always best. Obedience, He is honored and we are blessed. Even if the circumstances might be difficult, it is always true that 
the narrow road leads to life. And so what is the issue as we come to the topic of abortion and the sanctity of life? In verse 8 of chapter 31, it says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Who is he talking about? He's talking about human people, persons. See, he doesn't say speak up for inanimate objects who can't speak for themselves. The grass in my lawn can't speak for itself, neither the wood in my fireplace or the gravel on my driveway. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about speak up for people who can't speak for themselves. So the basic question behind all of this issue is this. Are the unborn babies, are they human persons? If they're human persons, that we are bound by the direction found here in the Word to value them. You see, our society would never allow mass killings in the street simply to reduce population or to reduce poverty. Nor would we allow mass extermination of those with disabilities to make the life of their family easier. Because they are persons, human people that we care about. All the justifications applied at some level to abort the unborn would melt away if we were convinced that those babies are persons just like the people we know and we talk to. At the basic level, this is about deciding who who is a human and who is not. So how do we decide? The methods of decision-making are all around us. Oftentimes, we point to physical development. We think to ourselves, well, at some point along the way, that baby becomes a person. We talk a lot about viability, the ability of the unborn to live outside the mother's womb. There are circles that say that's when the baby becomes a person, when it is viable outside the mother's womb. But our, human, our, our scientific and medical advances have pushed that time younger and younger and younger. And now there are places in our nation where they're passing what they call heartbeat bills. They're declaring that personhood begins at the initiation of a heartbeat. And that is helpful for limiting abortions, but it still is pointing to some place along the journey of development, some place along that way that says at that stage, that baby is a person and not before. Another way of looking at it says, well, we appeal to genetic conformity. If the genes are all there and if they're working properly, then we have a person. But if they're not all there or not working properly, we have a defective blob. Francis Crick is a Nobel Prize winner for the discovery of DNA. He's taken this point to an extreme. He argues that we should wait two days after birth to expect the baby to determine whether this baby has any birth defects. And if not, then it is a human person. If so... It is disposable. The third criteria sometimes is mental criteria. Michael Tooley is a philosopher who stated that in order to be a person, one must be aware of one's own existence and consciously desire to continue to live. Anything below that is not a human person. Using this criteria, the unborn is never a person at any stage in development. Neither are infants. And using this criteria, never, neither are those who are suicidal, even as adults, not human any longer. But a happy dog fits the bill. 
The fourth criteria, Joseph Fletcher, a name familiar with you, uh, to you from maybe your college ethics classes. Joseph Fletcher says we should use IQ as a guide. If you have a certain IQ level above which you are a human person, below which you are biological life but not technically human, therefore disposable. I read that description. I thought to myself, I, I don't know if I make the cut. Where, what, what's the number? Above and below. What all of these th- theories have in common is they pick a point of development or they pick a, a, a moment of achievement and below that or away from that, this baby is not a person, not a human, and so technically biological life but not needing to be protected. So what does the Bible say about that? The Bible declares that the prenatal unborn child is a human person with identity and purpose. The Apostle Paul writes about that in Galatians 1, referring to himself. He says, It pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. He's reflecting on the fact that even when I was in my mother's womb, there was a calling on my life, there was a purpose for my existence. Now, if, you're reading the, if you read the NIV translation there, that's a, there's a bad translation. That, the one I read to you was the New King James Version. NIV has that in the margin, but in the, in the text it says from birth. But it doesn't refer to birth. It refers to the womb. Personhood happens even, even before birth, that unborn child. As we read our Christmas stories in our, in our Advent season, you remember one of the things that we read about was the prenatal awareness of John the Baptist when Jesus came in also in Mary's womb. When Virgin Mary went to the home of Elizabeth, Elizabeth exclaims in Luke 1, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. It wasn't Elizabeth who was leaping. It was John the Baptist leaping, and joy is an emotion of a person. And that unborn child being carried by Elizabeth is the first person to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But probably the most profound statement for personhood of the unborn is David's words in Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's God's perspective on the unborn. They are people with a purpose, with a plan. There's no criteria attached there. There's no achievement being evaluated there. God knows the plans he has for those children, even in the unborn. Right in the very beginning of development, this child, this baby is a person, loved by God, known by God. So since that's the Bible's perspective, what should we do? Let's read verse 8 again. Speak up. For those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. We are to care for those who cannot proclaim their own justice, care for those who cannot defend themselves in all kinds of categories, but certainly here. This is justice in action. I encourage you for our 1245 Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Abortion Questions seminar today. Because when we say speak up, what should we say? What tone should we use? 
What are the phrases that would be helpful? What thoughts would be pertinent? Speak up. We need to learn how to do that if we're going to obey. In his book, The Godward Life, John Piper addresses the issues of justice that, when it, uh, that should be applied when it appears that the rights of the weak and the infant, uh, interests of the strong are in conflict. There's two of those laws I want to share with you. Law number one, justice assumes that if one person's right must be limited to protect another person's rights, the limitation that does the least harm is the most just. The limitation that does the least harm is the most just. Now, there are those rare occasions where potentially there's harm for both mother and child in the medical situation that's going on there. And this principle alone doesn't give us answers for that. But that situation is rare in comparison to the vast number of abortions where the greatest of all harm is visited upon the unborn child, ultimately harming that one who cannot protect themselves. Principle number two. Justice works with the assumption that when two people are stuck in a predicament, the one who bore the responsibility for the problem bears more of the consequence. You live that way every day. That's the way that we approach, to lo- approach life. If I'm driving in my car and I have a, a toddler in my car, not in a child seat, and a policeman pulls me over and writes me a ticket, I pay the fine. Why? Because I'm supposedly the responsible adult driving that car. I don't raid the the piggy bank of that child and make them pay the fine because they are innocent. But in abortion, the innocent pays the price, the ultimate consequence. Here's the principle that we must operate by. The rights of the weak outweigh the preferences of the strong. The rights of the weak outweigh the preferences of the strong. strong. But we started this talk with mercy, so let's end it with mercy as well. Micah chapter 6 says this, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. We are to love mercy in all the issues that we face. That speaks to the tone with which we engage the issue. We repudiate those who think they have to avenge the deaths of the unborn by violence themselves. We need thoughtful, biblical, prayerful intervention to keep people from engaging in this situation. And that's why we support ministries like At The Well, who engage with those who are seeking abortions and prayerfully deal with them speaking the issue of morality from Scripture. We also need to come alongside those who seek to keep their children and raise their babies and assist them with loving environments where their their children are nurtured and cared for and provided for. That's why we support Directions Medical Clinic and for the work that they do. We need to counsel those who have abortion in their history and lovingly show them that God is a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of forgiveness, and that's our job in the family of God. But one woman author puts it this way. She, she writes, Women submit to abortions not so much because they feel they have the choice, but because in their circumstance they feel they have no choice. And the message we must give is Jesus provides the choice. 
Love provides the choice. God provides the choice. And I say all this not because this is political, because it's moral. This is a spiritual, biblical issue. Above all, we must apply love mercy, do justice, walk humbly, and speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Let's pray together. Lord, these issues are troubling to us. And we want to be, at the same time, declaring what wisdom and righteousness looks like and bathing that declaration in mercy and grace. We want to be those who love mercy and do what is just. So we thank you, Lord, that as we contemplate how we can speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, that all these choices and all these decisions are always bathed in your grace, and your grace is greater than every issue we face. In you we will find hope. So help us, Lord, to be people of hope. Even in this issue, which is so filled with despair, help us, Lord, shine your hope for all to see. For we have experienced grace, and we love you for it. In your name we pray, amen. The team is back to lead us in a closing song. Let's stand as we sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see so clearly. Hallelujah, grace like rain falls down on me. Hallelujah, all my stains are washed away.
It might be that you're here and there's an issue in your life for which you need prayer. Something that you're going through, a decision that you're facing, or just the opportunity to rejoice in the fact that God is on your side and you want to tell Him thanks. No matter what you need to say in prayer, we have prayer counselors that are standing by right next to the organ by the prayer table. They will wait. They will pray for you. If it's a burden you're carrying, you can lay it down because they will pray with you and for you. But first, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Dismiss us with your blessing. And as we go, Lord, we pray that we are the good and godly representatives of who you want us to be. Help us to represent you well to a world and a society that's going in the opposite direction. We have to go upstream. We have to go against the tide. But, Lord, we can do that in your grace and with your strength. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming.